take back, right? Sometimes we just say things and we wish, you know, where we think, you know what, that didn't come out quite the way that I intended for it to. There's so much now, especially with social media, that I don't think sometimes we realize that when you put something on Facebook, it's there for the whole world to see and everyone can see it. And I found when I was reading this weekend on the internet, some examples of people who were employees or in certain situations where they didn't realize everybody was going to see what they posted. Uh, One juror was on a murder trial case and she couldn't decide how she felt on the issue, whether the guy was guilty or not guilty. So she took to social media and started asking people, gave pertinent details of the case that were private. So she started asking people on social media and had a poll, I think even, on whether this guy was guilty or not guilty. And of course, eventually the court was tipped off and she was removed from the case and probably had some other legal ramifications. But all she was doing was trying to figure out what she decided on the case. That's one way to get out of jury duty, I guess. But secondly, a hospital in England had a group of employees play a game where they all intended to lie down on the job and post pictures on social media. So every so often they'd be lying down and posting pictures on social media. Eventually the hospital management found out and gave them more time to lie down on the job by firing them. Uh, Number three, a daycare employee hated her job so much that she took to social media to post pictures of children and make fun of them on social media. And when the parents found out about that, the daycare obviously fired her. There were probably some other legal ramifications as well. I thought this was interesting. The person who voices Aflac the Duck was fired because he because of tweets in which he made fun of a tsunami in Japan. So I guess even if you're the duck for Aflac, you can be canceled as well for what you say on the internet. And then lastly, in 2014, a communications director for a New York company posted a racist tweet before taking off, and she was fired before she landed. So how about that? You make a mistake when you take off, before you even land, you're fired from your job. And that's just how quick all this stuff on social media can take place. Now, whether or not those people should or shouldn't be fired, I wouldn't have done any of the stuff they did necessarily. But I think it does show that in our culture, we're becoming more and more intolerant towards people voicing their opinions. Now, I don't really use social media too much. I mainly just post pictures of my dog. I talk about Alicia and I's engagement, and I get videos telling me who the Bears should draft at number nine in the 2023 NFL draft. So that's pretty much what I use it for. Maybe not in that order, but um, I'm not a big post person on social media where I vent and things like that. But you do have to be careful what you say. When I was teaching last year, I used to talk to the kids about social media, and I said, it's not like you're just telling someone something and you can say, oh, I'm just kidding. It's like when it's on social media, it is there for the entire world to see. And sometimes we treat social, sometimes we say things on social media that we wouldn't even say if you were talking to someone's face. Now, as we see in our text today, we see Paul using some language and he gets quite the feedback. In in fact, the words that Paul says cause an uproar to the extent that a mob forms and tries to kill Paul and his companions. Look at verse 6 with me of Acts chapter 17. Because of what Paul says, it says, When they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down... Have come here also. What could Paul and his companions have done to turn the world upside down? What kind of social media post was that? What kind of Twitter tweet was that where Paul said something that caused everyone to get into such an uproar that he literally turned the world upside down? And I would suggest to you this morning that it's not anything that Paul came up with on his own. It wasn't that Paul got bored one day and decided to post some kind of selfie or something or some kind of joke on Twitter. It's because Paul was preaching the word of God. And when Paul preached the word of God, it turned the world upside down. Do you realize this morning that we're living in a society and a culture that is growing more and more intolerant towards God's word? I don't think if you or I were to post scripture and and proclaim to the world what the Bible means... I don't think we'd find a reaction too much different to what Paul finds here in Acts 17. Because when Paul starts preaching the Bible, it stirs everything up. That's what that word means, to stir or to disturb. 
people. And why is that? Because God's word is countercultural. It is the opposite of how the culture wants to live. We see Paul and Silas and Timothy going through this region of Macedonia. Remember, they were called to go here by God. They shared in Philippi in Acts 16, and they saw many people saved, and they saw a harsh reaction even to their message in Philippi. One of the themes we're going to notice as we see Paul on his missionary journeys is that he's going to face opposition from everyone. Last week, we saw opposition from Gentiles, Gentile pagans who had this woman who's demon-possessed. And when Paul cast the demon out, that was their way of money-making. That was how they were earning their gain. And so they were mad at Paul. In fact, they threw him in jail after they beat him. And here in Thessalonica, we're going to see some Jewish opposition as well. So the Gentiles don't like Paul. The Jews don't like Paul. Everyone is so opposed to Paul and his message, not because he's a bad guy or not because of anything he came up with, but because he's preaching God's word. Like I said earlier, I think as we continue to preach God's word in this culture, as things continue to progress in our nation and the world around us, we are going to face more opposition to truth. And why is that? Because God's word shows us how we should really live. God's word tells us how our lives should be run. And sometimes people don't like that. All of us as humans, we've fallen short of God's glory. We've sinned against God. In sinning, we have lifestyles that aren't pleasing to God if you don't know Jesus as Savior. And so when you hear the truth of the Bible, if you're not immediately drawn to repent and confess and believe in Christ, the Bible is going to tell you some things that you don't like. The book of James says that the Word of God is like a mirror. Now, sometimes I can go in front of the mirror and look at myself and my hair is crazy and everything, and I'm like, Oh, I look pretty good, but I'm not really looking in the mirror to see what I need to change. And then other times I decide to comb my hair and brush my teeth, you know, make sure I look okay. And in the same way, the word of God shows us our hearts. And sometimes when the word of God shows us our hearts, it shows us things that we don't like to see. And that's what I think happens here in Acts 17. Paul shows these people how they need to repent and believe the gospel. And some people say yes, and they repent, they become Christians, and they follow God, and it's a great number of people. But other people get mad, they're stirred up, and they say that Paul is turning the world upside down. My prayer this morning is that through us, not only us, but through churches around the world, we would have men and women who proclaim the gospel to others and who turn the world upside down. Wouldn't it be amazing if people in Trafalgar said, Sycamore Bible Church is turning the world upside down. The people there are preaching the Bible, sharing people the gospel, and people are getting saved. And so I want to challenge us with that this morning. This fact that I think we see from Acts 17, it's very simple. It's that the Word of God transforms lives. The Word of God transforms lives. And you think, well, that's a simple statement. It is a simple statement. But sometimes people, not just people, sometimes even Christians, even churches, don't live by this statement. I've been to things in our county before, different programs for rehabilitation, counseling programs, things like that, where I see a lot of people do a lot of great things to help people, but they do not share with people God's word. And they think through all these other programs, somebody's life can be changed. And maybe they're fixing the symptoms of a problem like drug abuse, like alcohol abuse, like homelessness, things like that. Those are good things to try to help with, but they do not take people back to God's word. And so I'd argue that their lives are not being transformed. It is important for us to remember this morning that true transformation comes from the word of God. The answers that our world needs are not found in a Google search engine. They're not found in a TED Talk. They're not found on Fox News or CNN or whatever news station you like to watch in the morning. They're not found on Facebook. I can guarantee they're not found on Facebook, okay? They are found in God's Word. And so this morning, I want us to see three effects from God's Word that are clearly shown in Acts 17. And the first one is this. The Word of God persuades. The Word of God persuades. Do you see that with me in verses 1 through 4? 
Picking up where Paul left off in his missionary journey, it says in verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they're continuing this missionary journey. You can see on the map, Paul gets this vision in Troas where this Macedonian man, again, I think it was probably Luke. You can disagree with me, and that's okay. He calls them to go to Macedonia, and it's God through the Spirit telling Paul to go to Macedonia. That was in what we would think of as like Eastern Europe today. So last week we saw him go to Philippi. And when he's in Philippi, he has some pretty remarkable things happen. He sees Lydia, a seller of purple, get saved and believe the gospel. She was a prominent woman. We see a woman who had a demon have her demon cast out. And that was the whole kind of cultish religion with the snake and things like that. I won't go into that necessarily more because we, I don't like talking about snakes. Um, but we see this demon was cast out of this woman. And there's a great transformation in her life and in others' lives because of that. But the authorities don't like that. So in Philippi, Paul's thrown in jail. When he's thrown in jail after he'd been beaten severely, we see that an earthquake happens which frees Paul, but Paul doesn't leave from the jail cell. He stays in which the Philippian jailer is subsequently saved and believes the gospel. And then Paul and Silas are free to go to Thessalonica now. So on their way to Thessalonica, they pass through two towns, Amphipolis and Apollonia. Now, I'm not going to say too much about these towns. They were about 30 miles or so from each other and from Philippi. So this whole journey to Thessalonica was about 95 to 100 miles that Paul did. Remember, this is all pretty much on foot. Some people think he took courses through this region. I have no, I, I have nothing to go up to base that on, but it's just what some scholars have said. For whatever reason, though, Paul is traveling through this region, and he comes to this town of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was the capital of another district in the region of Macedonia. It was another important town in this region, and it had ties to Rome. It was considered a free city with the right to self-government. However, they were still very supportive of Caesar. Now, they were under Roman authority, but they could function autonomously like a free city, like a Roman city could. But they had very close ties to Caesar, and we're going to see how that comes up later in this passage. It was a larger city, and it was the chief seaport of Macedonia. It was also a very wealthy city, much like Philippi. So as we see here in verse 1, it says there was a synagogue of the Jews. There seems to be a large Jewish population in Thessalonica. And so look at verse 2. It says, And Paul went in, and as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So Paul goes into the synagogue, and we've talked about this before. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, yes. But why does he go to all these Jewish synagogues over and over again? Because that was how Paul could meet Gentiles. Because there were Gentiles who practiced Judaism who would be in the synagogues as well. So when he preaches the gospel in the synagogues, we see Jews get saved, we see Gentiles get saved, and Paul always has some more inroads into these Gentile communities by going to the synagogue. So yes, he focused on the Gentiles, but he wasn't opposed to Jews being saved either. So he goes into the synagogue, which was this Jewish meeting place, and it says he went in for three Sabbath days and reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now we're going to start seeing in verses 2 and 3 an explanation of Paul's ministry, and I don't think this is just what he did here. I think this is what Paul did every time he went to the synagogue to teach God's word. I think Luke is just deciding to highlight what's happening here in verses 2 and 3. He's going to use three verbs to talk about how Paul is reasoning from the scriptures. The first one is here. It says he reasoned with them. This has the idea of exchanging ideas or conversing about something. It also gives us the impression that the arguments Paul is giving is reasonable. Now pay attention to this with me because this is important as we look at how God's word is working. Sometimes we have this idea in Christian circles that a person saved by faith, they have to believe the gospel by faith. Yes, and that's true. So we don't have any reasonable arguments for what we believe. Well, no, that's not true. We do have good reasons for why we believe what we believe, but we still have to believe by faith. And why is that? 
Why do we have to believe by faith? Well, for one, I would say this. Everyone has to believe what they believe by faith. We talked about this yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast. There are people who would say they are atheists who believe in UFOs, okay? You, I, I'm sorry. I don't care what YouTube says. If you believe in aliens from outer space, you have to have faith to believe that in some form or fashion, right? So even if you're an atheist and you don't believe in UFOs, or you do, that's fine, you have to believe by faith. It takes faith to believe anything. And so I would also say this. Why do we need faith to believe the gospel? It's not because we don't have good arguments for what we believe or good reasons for believing the Bible, for believing the gospel, but it's because our hearts are naturally predisposed to reject God. We see this throughout Scripture in Romans 1. God created the world. We can see God through creation. You have to look at creation and say, hey, there's a designer. There's someone who made the world. And yet, what do we do in our hearts? When we're sinful, we try to say, God didn't create the world. It must have been evolution. It must have been something else. It couldn't have been God. There's all these theories out there, which I think take way more faith to believe than the Bible. And it shows us, again, just how our hearts are turned towards God, how we refuse to believe that God is who he says he is. Even for those who believe that there is a God, they still reject that God is Lord of their life, that God is Savior. So it's not that we don't have reasonable arguments for what we believe. It's that man's heart is turned away from the Bible. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says it's that the gospel, which is wisdom for us, is foolishness to the world. They look at us and they think, why would they believe all that stuff in the Bible? It's because our hearts are have been changed. If you're a believer this morning, it's not just because someone convinced you of something, it's because God has worked in your heart to give you faith to believe in his word. So we see Paul is reasoning here. He's exchanging with them. Now remember, the Jewish people had the Old Testament. So they were already tracking with Paul all the way up until he starts talking about Jesus Christ. And so he's reasoning with them from the scriptures. Notice all of this is coming from the word of God. It doesn't say Paul listened to a great video on YouTube or got a great book to read on this, but he's reasoning with them from the word of God. Other resources, materials aren't bad at all, but everything we do should be focused in God's word. Look at verse three. It says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So we see these other two verbs here. This verb explaining is exactly what the English word means. Some translations, I think the King James says opening. So opening God's word and explaining what it means. So that's what Paul's doing. And now what scriptures was he opening? I think he was going to the Old Testament and showing how Jesus was the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. You might ask, can you really understand that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament? Yes, you can. If you read through the Old Testament, in fact, I would argue the question isn't, oh, can you see if Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament? The question is, how can you see that Jesus isn't the Christ from the Old Testament? Because time and time again, we see scriptures that are exactly fulfilled in who Jesus is. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's explaining scripture to them. And then it says, proving, there, that second verb, proving, so it's, again, making an argument. It is showing from Scripture why it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, why would he need to prove this to them? Why would he need to show that this is the case? It's because the Jewish people did not have a complete picture of Christ. They thought Christ was going to be a king who was going to come and get rid of Rome and was going to reign on earth during that time. We see from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, other passages, the suffering of Christ, what he would face and suffer here on the earth. And so what is Paul doing? He's proving, he's showing why Christ had to die on the cross for sin. The Jews thought Christ would come and he would solve their political problem. He would become their king, their champion, their ruler. But Christ actually came to solve their problem with sin. He shows why it was necessary for Christ to suffer and die on the cross because we have a sin problem in our hearts. 
Not only did he need to suffer and die, but look also, it says, and why he needed to rise from the dead. The gospel is not just about the death of Christ. One of the things to be careful of with Easter, I love Easter, I love celebrating the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Sometimes we act during Easter, though, especially on like Good Friday, like Christ is still dead. Christ is not still dead. Christ is risen from the dead. He paid for our sins on the cross, but he proved he was God in the resurrection. And once again, you might ask, how did Paul know this? Because scripture speaks of the resurrection. Psalm 16 speaks of Christ rising again from the dead. Peter uses this in Acts 2. Jesus says over and over again to the disciples, I'm going to go suffer, die, and then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. So Christ says this, but are any of the disciples waiting for him to rise from the dead? No, there's two women who are there at the tomb. No one else is expecting. And even when they see Christ, they think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, I told you over and over again that I was going to rise from the dead. It reminds me of when I was teaching. I used to give quizzes to the students, vocab quizzes and spelling quizzes, things like that. I'd tell them exactly what's going to be on the quiz. We get to the day of the quiz. Are we just going to skip the quiz today? No, we're not going to skip the quiz. Well, what's going to be on the quiz? Everything we've gone over for the past two days that I said was going to be on the quiz. Well, you didn't tell me that. Yes, I did. Look at your study guide. And you just, I couldn't believe that I could say something over and over and over again. And they'd still be surprised by it. They'd still look at me like, wow, I can't believe that quiz was so hard. And I told, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go off on it now. It's, all, it's done. It's in the past. But Jesus told them that he would rise from the dead. And he did. And Paul is sharing this gospel message with them. And notice what he says. He explains Christ's death. He explains Christ's resurrection. And then he says, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. You might say, what's so important about that? His name is Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is what he was known as. Christ shows his title as Messiah. So Jesus suffered for sin. Jesus was risen from the dead, proving he was God. And Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills the Old Testament expectation. He is Lord and he is king of everything. And this is where it starts to get a little bit controversial for not only the Jews, but the Gentiles who are there as well. Paul does a great job of explaining who Jesus is to these people. Now look at verse 4 with me, and we're going to see how these people respond to who Christ is. It says, And some of them were persuaded to join and join Paul and Silas. So Paul persuades them. Now, they, did they believe by faith? Yes. But did, did Paul use reasonable arguments in explaining the gospel to them? Yes, he did. So some believed, some were persuaded. Notice who this was. It says, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So Jewish people were saved, Gentiles were saved, and then leading women were saved. Why does Luke mention this? He's mentioned this actually several times in Acts, and he will go on to mention it later on as well. Some people look at Scripture and they think that women are kind of devalued or they're not emphasized. I don't think that's true at all. I think Scripture, especially for that time, emphasizes the role of women heavily. If you look at other writings during that time, during the time of the biblical writings, Scripture gives more value to women than any other system did during that time. And Luke points out how there were leading women, not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well, who were saved. Who were these women? They could have been city officials, government officials. We're not quite sure. But we see here, and we'll see later on in verses 10 and 11, that these leading women were saved as well. And Luke makes a note of it here. So we see there is a large response to the gospel. This large response to the gospel did not occur because Paul was eloquent with his words, because he was a good preacher, because he had all these great illustrations, because he had this innovative evangelistic ministry, because he wore skinny jeans or had some kind of cool haircut. This change and transformation happened because Paul preached the gospel, because Paul preached God's word and people believed it by faith. 
I think about that song that we sang earlier this morning, How Firm a Foundation. Sometimes we think, I wish God's word applied more to my life. In fact, I've had some even Christian friends of mine that are good Christians. I know they are, but they've said, I just wish we had more. I just wish God had written us more. I wish God had given us more. And I think of how firm a foundation in that first verse where it says, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? We don't need anything else. We don't need a Bible part two or a sequel to the Bible. We don't need visions and all these other types of things to get answers from God. We need God's word. And we need God's word explained and taught and given to people accurately. That is what truly transforms lives. And so do you believe that this morning? Sometimes we can say we believe that, we can sing about it, we can tell others they need to go to the Bible. But when it comes to ourselves, we might like to try something else. We might try another answer. We might try to look up something on Google. We might try to call friends, looking for other answers apart from God's word. God's word answers life's biggest questions. And so if we believe this about God's word, if we believe it's sufficient for life, are you studying God's word? Paul takes careful amount of time. He takes three Sabbath days. This all didn't happen at once. But over and over again, he goes to the synagogue preaching and explaining the Bible. So do you take time to study God's word? It's why as a pastor of this church, I take a good amount of my week to try to study for the morning message and for the different preaching opportunities and teaching opportunities I have here. Why is that? Because you guys don't just want my best guess. You don't want me to just be up here saying, I don't really know what this is saying, but here's my best guess. You want me to know what the Bible says because we need scripture in our lives to grow and transform as Christians. Some people go to other things. They go to other <clears throat> avenues for transformation and for growth, but nothing will change you or transform you like the word of God. Amen? Amen. Let's go to ver point number two this morning. We see that the word of God persuades. We also see that the word of God stirs. Now, I spent more time than I should have. I was using my thesaurus to try to look at different words. I almost used the word disturbs here. I didn't think that had the connotation I went into with it. But we see the word of God stirs. And why did I spend so much time trying to figure out this word? Well, look at with me at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. Not the Jews who were saved, but the other Jews who are looking on at Paul's message. They were jealous. And why are they jealous? Because people are being changed. Because lives are being transformed. And the Jews don't like it. It says the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Now, who were these w wicked men of the rabble? Some people just think there were people who could get riled up easily to form a mob. I actually think that when you look at this word in Greek, it means marketplace people or people you could pay off. You get the impression here that they might have even paid these people off to incite the crowd and form this mob. So where did these people come from? This started from jealousy from the Jews and it turned into mob mentality to the point where if we keep reading here in verse five, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So this mob is going to Jason's house. Jason was a man who was housing Paul and his companions. And they were looking for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So things have started to escalate rather quickly. And look at verse 6. And when, they, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. So I don't know where Paul, Silas, and Timothy were hiding, but they couldn't find any of them. So they found Jason who owned this house. He was probably a wealthy person is my best guess. Some people think he had the same trade as Paul being a tent maker. But I think he was a wealthy person who was able to house all these people. They couldn't find Paul, Silas, and Timothy, so they dragged him out to the marketplace. And look at what they say. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here 
also. This verb, turning the world upside down, means to stir, to disturb, to trouble, or to upset. The result of Paul's preaching is not only the salvation of Jews and Gentiles, it is also the disturbance of an entire city. Now, why were they so disturbed? What made them turn the world upside down? Why were they so counter to what Paul was doing? Why did this bother them so much? I get the impression that they're so upset because Paul had challenged the very way that they live life. If you think about what Paul was saying, each person in the city might have a different reason why they were upset with him. How did they, why were they upset? Well, think about this with me. If you were a Gentile and you were a pagan worshiper, you worship false gods, you're being told by Paul from the Bible that there's only one God and that you shouldn't worship these false idols. If you're involved in gross sexual immorality or some kind of other sin, Paul is telling you to repent and believe the gospel that God is not satisfied with your sinful lifestyle. If you're loyal to Rome, you're told that there's another king who's not Caesar and his name is Jesus. If you're a Jew, you're told that the Messiah has come. But what do we see over and over again in Acts? Jesus came, but the Jews put him to death. But death couldn't hold him and he was risen again from the dead. So if you're a Jewish person as well, you're being challenged by Paul that the Messiah was here and you rejected him. And then even the Sadducees who we've seen in Jerusalem, they doubted the resurrection that that was possible. But Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is alive. So all of these different people Paul has made upset. Maybe you've seen that on social media where one Twitter post or Facebook post can make all these different people upset all at once. That's what Paul has done with God's word. So this causes this culture, this sinful, vulgar culture to become upset, to form this mob. And why is that? It's like I said earlier, God's word is like a mirror. You look into it and it shows you your heart. And sometimes our hearts in our hearts are things that we do not want to see. And so instead of repenting, believing the gospel, being transformed, these people rebel. They reject God's authority. The word of God will convict hearts that are open to its words, but it will stir those who are opposed to it. Now look at verse 7 with me. These people continue talking and they say, And Jason has received them, and they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. I don't know if this is the only reason they're upset or the main reason, but this is at least what they try to pin on Paul and his companions, that they're preaching that there is another king. Now I want to point something out. Jesus, Paul, Peter, all the apostles were very respectful to Caesar. What does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Throughout the epistles, we see respect authority, respect Caesar and Rome. They were not antagonistic towards him, but what did they understand? They understood that Caesar is not the final authority, that there is a God and it's not Caesar. There's another king and it is not Caesar. His name is Jesus something that we all have to wrestle with throughout all ages and walks of life. There is a higher authority always, and it is not us. There is a God, and it is not you. There's a Savior. His name is Jesus. And so this sets the crowd in an uproar. They do not want to submit to the authority of Christ. Look at verse 8. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So the people making these complaints were disturbed. And when everyone else hears it, they're very disturbed as well. They're very upset with Paul and his companions. So what do they do? It says in verse 9, And when they'd taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they try to solve this problem with money. Now, why did they take money from Jason? Jason probably gave them this money to save Paul's life. This was a mob. This was a huge crowd that was getting very angry. And so they took this money from Jason to say, hey, 
pay us this money, promise you're never going to preach this again, and we'll let you guys live. Jason gave them the money, although they would continue to preach the gospel. And then in verse 9, it says, When they had taken the money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. We'll see from in verse 10 in a moment that Jason, from all of this, decides it's time for Paul and Silas and all of them to get out of town. And I think that just shows you how intense and how even murderous this mob was. I don't know if Jason would have given them that money had it not been at the expense of their lives. I think their lives were in danger in this moment. The word of God exposes the sin and corruption of a society. When people look into God's word and they see their own hearts, they immediately are repelled and they either can repent or they will reject God and his word. I think of it like this. I try to clean my apartment. I try to keep it somewhat nice. But the way that I clean and the way that Alicia cleans is a little bit different. I try to clean to just kind of touch everything up and make it look nice. Maybe when I sweep, I sweep around the couch. She's like, we got to move the couch out and look under it. And when I look under the couch, when I'm sweeping, I see all this dirt and nastiness and I'm immediately kind of repelled. Mac finds a few bones in there that he's been looking for. He's like, oh, that's where that went. And he tries to chew on them, which is gross. And what do we have to do though? We have to clean it up. We have to meet that reality of how dirty it is under the couch and clean it up so that it is clean. I think about it with this, another illustration. Whenever I'm trying to lose weight, one of the things I think about is I don't want to get on the scale. I don't want to see how big I am. I don't want to see how much I need to lose weight. But always in my life, the first step has been to get on the scale, see how much weight I actually need to lose, and start from there. Sometimes I think, oh, I'll just lose weight, and then I'll look at the scale later. No, you need to see how much weight you need to lose, and then start from there. In the same way, God's word shows us reality. And do you believe this morning that we live in a culture that is opposed to reality? We try to make another reality. In fact, they're doing this virtual reality so that reality can be whatever you want it to be. We are so afraid of seeing the way things really are. The word of God exposes the sin and the corruption of our culture. People today reject God's plan for their family. God has said marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Mankind rejects that. Society rejects that. They say it's not loving, not tolerant, not acceptable. It is God's plan. Marriage is God's. He ordained it in Genesis. It is his plan for the family. People reject God's plan for authority. I don't have to listen to God. I don't need him in my life. That's not true. All of us are under God's authority, whether we like it or not. I had an issue yesterday with my dog. Sometimes when I'm cooking and it gets smoky, he decides that he doesn't want to come inside. So he goes outside and he kind of hides in the fenced in yard. You guys can probably understand that, right? You know, and I have to remind him that he's my dog and bring him back into where it is safe. People reject God's control for their life. They don't want to say that God is in control. They want to try to do things their self and be independent. People reject God's salvation. There's not only one way to be saved. There's multiple ways. All paths lead to the one. That's not what God has said. God has said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, this is what the word of God says. And when we reject what the word of God says, we lead a life that is contrary to him. And by the way, there are consequences to that. There are consequences for not obeying the word of God, even if you're not a Christian. I've seen this in the last several months. I've seen this in the last several years. Friends of mine, people that I thought were good people who genuinely wanted to please God, but they said, you know what? I don't need to follow God's word. I'm going to go do my own thing. What God has said in his word, they think it's not serious. I don't know why this sin is a big issue. I don't know why being sexually promiscuous is such a big issue. Well, it has consequences. 
I don't know why changing my gender or trying to live an alternative lifestyle is so dangerous. It has consequences. Not following the word of God has consequences to your life. God is not just sitting in heaven and saying, oh, I don't want you to have fun, so I'm going to give you all these rules. No. God's word is good. What he's told us in his word is beneficial for our lives. So do you embrace God's word? Do you embrace the truth from the Bible? Do you order your life by it? Do you feel the conviction from God's word? You know, whenever we feel conviction, we think, ooh, I don't want to feel that. No, lean into it. Feel that conviction. I'm not trying to make people feel bad, but if God has convicted you of sin, don't turn away from it, but follow it to repentance. Follow it to transformation. The word of God persuades, the word of God stirs, and finally the word of God confirms. Look what happens in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those of Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they immediately go to this next town of Berea. Now if you look at this map that we have, it's not really on the way to Athens because I think that's where Paul was trying to go. He was trying to go down to Athens. So why did Paul go to Berea? Well, it was a notable town, so maybe he always had this as a plan to go to Berea next. But I would also say this, that it was late at night when Paul went. He was leaving the city rather quickly. And so maybe that's just the route that Paul ended up being on. There was no other choice but to go that way towards Berea. Berea was a notable town, but it wasn't necessarily on the way to Athens, but it was God's will for Paul to be there. Now, when he gets there, it says in verse 11, these Jews were more noble. Now, why is that? Because they didn't reject Paul. They didn't turn away from Paul, but they accepted what Paul said with eagerness. They were excited to hear Paul's message. And notice what they did. It says, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were excited to hear Paul's message. They wanted to know who the Messiah was. And so they compared Paul's words with scripture. I just want to say this. It is not wrong for anybody in our church or in any church to take what I say, what another pastor says, what another teacher says, and compare it to scripture. Now, if you come to me on a Monday morning and you have a laundry list of things I've done wrong and a checklist of like, hey, I think your hair was messed up and, you know, I don't like the way your glasses look and things like that. Well, that might be an issue. OK, but it is never wrong for someone to say, I've been looking in scripture and I have questions about what you've been teaching. That's never wrong. In fact, these Jews are commended. Why? Because they took what Paul said and they compared it with scripture and they understood that this was God's plan. The Bible is meant to be studied. It's not wrong for us to ask questions of the Bible. The Bible is true. It always stands the test of time. So these Jews were noble because they examined the word with eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see if it was so. I think again, I just want to point out that this took time. Sometimes we think these opportunities for evangelism, they're just going to happen right away. But sometimes they take time, days, weeks, even years sometimes, to lead someone to Christ. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So we see Jews believe, Gentiles believe, both men and these important women again, which are pointed out. Verse 13, but, and I think this is interesting, but when Jew, the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. I've said this before, I love petty people. And these Jews hear that Paul is in Berea and they follow him from Thessalonica all the way to Berea to run him out of town. What could cause such just determined and focused 
opposition to the gospel. It is the fact that God's word showed these people, this is your life and you need to change. And they said no. Have you ever wondered why atheists, people who reject the Bible, are so passionate about what they believe? What gives them this motivation to just hate God and not believe that there is a God and try to convince so many people that there's not a God? It's because God has shown them their hearts. Instead of repenting and believing the gospel, they've rejected God, and it's led to this fervent and determined opposition to God and his plan. The word of God persuades, but the word of God also stirs. But what I love in this passage is that for the Bereans who had been studying the word of God, who had been hoping for the Messiah, the word of God confirmed. The word of God confirmed. How many times in your life have you needed encouragement from scripture? Have you been depressed? Have you been discouraged? You've heard something from God's word that confirms your faith, that gives you encouragement. How many times have you maybe doubted your salvation, doubted your faith in Christ, and God's word has given you the assurance that you need? These people had an eager expectation for the gospel, and God's word confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. But unfortunately, because of these Jews, the brothers Paul and Silas and Timothy were not able to stay there. Look at verse 14. The brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. So Paul has to get out of there. We don't know why, but they were agitating the crowds. I'm guessing his life was in danger again. So the company splits up. Paul goes by sea to Athens. We're actually going to see him there in a couple weeks by himself. And Timothy and Silas remained there. So it was better for them to split up due to safety concerns. Paul had to go first. Timothy and Silas stayed. And then look at verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So we see the three of them split up, but they will get back together again. I think during this time, uh, Silas would go to Philippi and Timothy would go actually back to Thessalonica at one point. We'll talk more about that even in the next couple weeks. But for Paul, his next stop is Athens, where he'd be by himself and he would continue to preach the gospel to Gentiles, this time who have no concept for who God is. But for us today, as we think about our lives, as we think about the word of God, I want us to think about what we've learned from God's word this morning. God's word persuades those who hear it, those who hear the word of God and have hearts that are open to being saved, to repenting of sin. It persuades and they believe the gospel. God's word stirs. If you reject God's word, your heart will be stirred up. You'll face opposition to God. But then God's word confirms as well. During the times that we need it, God's word confirms our hearts. It reminds us that these things are true. First Peter says, always have a reason for the hope that is within you. It gives us that hope that we need in life. But as we conclude this morning, I have three final questions for us concerning the word of God. Number one. Do I accept the word of the Lord? We can study God's word. We can read God's word. But sometimes we don't like God's word. Sometimes we read something and we think, that's not exactly what I want to do. When it says, love those who persecute you. When it says, turn the other cheek. When it says, submit to authority. We think, actually, God, I want to do it another way. I've got a different way to do things. But it is the word of God. In Thursday Bible study, we've been studying Romans. The first 11 chapters are harder to understand because of the theological concepts. They're really deep. But then I told them in chapters 12 through 16, the concepts are easy to understand. They're just hard to live out. Sometimes God's word is like that. It's hard to understand, or maybe it's easy to understand, and it's hard to apply to life. But do I accept the word of the Lord? 
saying this is what God has told us to do. I've had people before, different points in my life, been at other churches working as an intern. In fact, I can remember this one moment where I was meeting with the pastors and they were trying to make a decision on something. And a church member came in and they said, the pastor said, we're going to make this decision. It's based on the word of God. And the member said, well, I hope that's what God wants us to do. Well, if it's from God's word, it is what God wants us to do. If God has said it, we believe it. Amen. Amen. Do I accept the word of the Lord? Number two, how do my words reflect the words of scripture? My speech to others, what others hear me say, the advice I give to others, are they based on God's word? The Bible is a book, yes, written by God, but it is God's message for us. It is his message for us. It's the things that he wants us to know. The things that he wants us to know are found in scripture. I hear people talk and give advice. Sometimes people try to come up with clever things or cool things to say of, of themselves. They try to be quotable. The people in my life who have been the most wise have been the people who have quoted scripture to me. They've been the people who have consistently pointed me back to God's word. And so to do that, we must study God's word. We must know God's word. We must live God's word. Number three, do I order my life according to God's word? All the relationships in my life, all of the affairs of my life, everything from finances to relationships to family to education, God's word has not just suggestions, but prescriptions, things that we should follow for each of those areas. Do you order your life according to God's word? I met some people that say, I'm kind of a Christian, but I'm mainly conservative. That doesn't work. Do you order your life according to God's word? I met some people, they say, you know, I love what God's word says about this, but I'm not going to follow what his word says about this. That doesn't work. God's word isn't just, hey, I'm going to take some, but I'm going to leave the rest. It's take it or leave it. Do you order your life according to God's word? And friends, when we follow these practical application points from Acts 17, when we see God's word for what it truly is, how it transforms our lives, what will it do? Well, in verse 6, it says it will turn the world upside down. It's not going to be because we have some kind of clever advertising campaign or social media strategy or because I try to do some gimmicks from the pulpit that will see the world turned upside down. But it will be from God's word, knowing it, studying it, believing it, applying it to our lives. That is the transforming power of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've inspired it. None of these words come from me. None of these words come from any of us, but they come from you. God, your word is faithful. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to it. Nothing I've said this morning, whether it's an illustration or making a point about a verse, nothing I've said is important because I've said it. But it's only important because it's come from you. So would you help us to believe that this morning? As we go from this place, as we think about our lives, I pray that this message wouldn't just fade away, that people would, I pray that people would not forget about it, but that they would take these truths and apply them to our lives. Help us to have hearts that are focused on you, desires that please you. Help us to share words with others that are from your word and help us to share the gospel with others and may they accept it and believe it by faith. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.